Good afternoon and welcome to HIT Policy Update, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by LexisNexis Risk Solutions. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time, and we will take them later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first, we're going to go about 30 minutes with our featured presentation from our usual special guest, Dr. John Halamka. Then we'll have a short chat with uh, Jay Sultan, VP of Healthcare Strategy at LexisNexis Risk Solutions. And then we'll go to our audience Q&A. So without further delay, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Halamka. Thanks for joining. Well, hey, Anthony, you know, I really enjoy doing these every quarter because it forces you to take a look at the ecosystem around us. This morning, I spoke with a large number of Israeli startups, and they said, well, well, what do you think is going on in the ecosystem? And I said, well, you always have to evaluate that question in terms of technology, policy, which we'll focus on today, but also importantly, culture. So here we are in the post-Omicron new normal. Notice, Anthony, I didn't say post-COVID new mm -hmm. normal. We're post-Omicron anyway potentially see travel restrictions that are going to be relaxed in, say, end of April timeframe. Uh, TSA may not re-up some of the mask wearing. What it means is people are going to get back to their usual workflows. But the question, of course, is what is that new normal going to look like? I would argue we are going to see telehealth, AI. We're going to see adoption of technologies that were five years away, but were accelerated by COVID, stay as the standard practice. So that's good, right? It means that those folks who are in tech companies and startups, they're going to have persistent demand for their products and services. Again, we'll talk about the policy in just a second, but it's just an, another general reflection. We have seen absurd valuations on a variety of these startup companies, a hundred times revenue. Why? Well, because there was so much cash available, corporations were looking for that hot growing technology. There were few to buy, so the prices went up. What we're also gonna see, just as doing an environmental scan, is a renormalization of values of startup companies, not a hundred times revenue, more like 10. Mm -hmm. And so over these next couple of quarters, we'll see a slide back to the normal. Now, people say, oh, my, is that going to cause brain drain? Is that going to cause people to leave digital health innovation? The answer is, I don't think so. What I think is going to happen is people have focused in these last couple of quarters on chasing crazy valuations. And by getting back to that new normal, we'll get back to focusing on the customer focusing on the innovation. <laughs> and mm -hmm. again, I think that is going to be good. So, you know, summary of what I think is going on, technology is advancing as it should. Policy, as you'll hear, is going to be enabling. Culture and funding are going to continue to push forward HIT innovation. So why don't you go to our next slide. For those who went to Vive and who went to Hims you know that you saw 
two major themes as you wandered the exhibition floor, the breakout sessions, or even the networking meetings? Virtual care, telehealth, and machine learning AI. And it was, Anthony, sort of reminiscent of, do you remember in 2017 where blockchain would save us all? (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, we're the blockchain iced tea company. Uh, Well, it was almost as if when you walked HIMSS and Vive, well, you know, we're the virtual care IT company with machine learning. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what is the reality of telehealth going forward? Flash in the pan? We did it, but we don't need to? Well, here's what I would argue. My 80-year-old mother was not digitally enabled pre-COVID, didn't type. By using an iPad for her clinical visits during COVID, she has now the expectation of being able to, when necessary, access her primary caregiver for a standard evaluation and prescription by doing nothing more than going to her kitchen table and launching an app. So here's the question. Will the policy environment continue to support this cultural expectation that we all now have during this COVID era? The answer is yes. So Secretary Becerra, you, some of you heard his keynote at HIMSS recognized that these last two years were a critical time for telehealth and that we learned a lot about new care models and that those care models should persist in a couple of ways. Before we started the webinar today, Anthony and I were chatting about my mushroom expertise. And do you know that, so I do 900 teleconsults a year personally, but here was the problem. Pre-COVID, If there was a mushroom poisoning in North Dakota, a physician licensed in North Dakota would have to call me, I would opine, and that physician in North Dakota would either believe me or not and deliver care to the patient. And this was because there were geographic restrictions on treatment. I am licensed in Minnesota, Massachusetts, and California, but not North Dakota. So what we saw during the COVID era is a reduction of geographical restrictions on teleconsultation and practice, on prescribing, on reimbursement, and even scope of service. That is, it used to be, for example, a paramedic could only see you in an ambulance or in a hospital. Well, now a paramedic can actually evaluate you in your home. You know, we have new capacity to deliver high acuity, serious and complex care in non-traditional settings like homes and hotels. So I think it's pretty important. We figured out costs are lower, safety, quality, and outcomes are higher, satisfaction is higher, net promoter score in Mayo's example of 97%. And then we actually are starting to see some interesting side effects. So let's imagine, Anthony, I see you're in your office or your library. Pretty unlikely that you have an antimicrobial resistant superbug hiding in your office. I hope not. So if I treat you for a serious and complex illness in that location, are you likely to get a nosocomial, a hospital-inquired infection? No, right? So, So wait, we can deliver safe quality, 
lower cost, same outcomes, better satisfaction, fewer complications care in a non-bricks-and-mortar location, we should do that forever. So what Secretary Becerra said is, yes, we will continue, and we would give at least 60 days notice of any change after the public health emergency declaration ends, and recognize you can't just go from highly innovative new care models back to old care models at the flip of a switch. So, okay, he signaled an interest in telehealth. Oh, and he also, by the way, said some things about artificial intelligence, which I'll cover in a moment. So what must Congress do? Next slide. It's up to Congress. And yes, I know this is going to sound a little bit crazy, Anthony, but this is a bipartisan issue with support on both sides of the aisle because it's all about serving patients and patients aren't partisan. It's also bicameral. House and Senate both support continuing telehealth, this changes in reimbursement, scope of service, licensure, and prescribing. So Senators Carper and Scott, Representatives Weinstrup and Blumenthaler introduced this bipartisan bicameral bill to extend the waiver for two years past the public health uh, emergency. And so one actually is going to assume that is, you know, if you extend something two years, you've probably seen this in government, Anthony, then it's extended again and extended again. And before you know it, it just becomes permanent and it's the new normal. So my expectation for those of you who are in the virtual care, telehealth, remote patient monitoring space is you are going to see parity for reimbursement in virtual care settings that will be permanent. And this is gonna have not only the patient convenience advantage, it's gonna be interesting because will hospitals need to have capital investments in say new beds, if they can offer the same services in non bricks and mortar settings? Mayo's experience is we were able to expand our capacity by 20% without investing a single dollar in a new bricks and mortar facility because we're now able to take the same specialty expertise and deliver it to a home or a, to a hotel. Mayo and Kaiser together with, their, um, com with the company Medically Home have discharged 9,000 patients with serious and complex illness from their homes. So the model works. And we're seeing in several geographic locations that it's a break even. That is because of these changes in reimbursement, it is a sustainable model that's culturally demanded and very effective. So that's good, right? We're, we're seeing congressional action on this. It will likely persist. Next slide. But here's an interesting challenge. Again, as I look at our environment around us, and I'm sure that, um, Anthony, you don't have the problem of hiring and retaining talented people in this era, but let's say most other organizations are finding, well, you've got the great resignation, the great realignment, the great retirement. Doctors are retiring early. 
these last couple of years have caused such burden and stress and anxiety and burnout and loss of satisfaction that they're leaving the profession. So that means that there's going to be more AI. There's going to be AI not replacing doctors. Don't get me you know, wrong. Don't, don't assume that. But how about this? A doctor is going to be very satisfied if they can see the right patient with the right acuity and the right setting at the right time. Top, that means they practice the top of their license. So, you know, Anthony's heard me say this before. He woke up with a headache this morning. Should he go see a neurosurgeon? Probably no. <laughs> Probably should see primary care. If there are neurological findings, referral to a neurologist. If no, well, then maybe imaging studies, lots of things on the path. So this means AI is going to provide us with care pathways, care navigation, and triage to an environment that has fewer practicing clinicians and health professionals because of retirements and resignations and realignments. But here's an interesting problem. Anthony's heard me describe this before, where if I have 10 million patients in a longitudinal birth to death de-identified data set for training AI, but they are from Minnesota, Florida, and Arizona, if I develop the world's best algorithm for, say, evaluating EKGs and predicting valvular disease, pulmonary hypertension, AFib, or, say, congestive heart failure, and run it in New Jersey, we really don't know if it's going to be biased, if it's going to be effective. So what does that mean? That means we need to train our AI algorithms on more and more data that is geographically diverse that includes social determinants of health, that is potentially beyond national and goes international. But there's an interesting challenge in doing that. So, you know, Anthony, pick, pick your favorite hospital. I mean, I'm sure you've got one local to you. If I went to that hospital and said, hey, CIO, Mayo Clinic really wants to tune algorithms for New Jersey. Could you just send me your data? Chances are the answer would be no. <laughs> so as we look to this future of training AI models for appropriateness, for utility, we're going to have to think about ways we're going to approach the problem of getting access to larger and larger data sets. And I'll go in order from hardest to easiest. So imagine one way, and you're seeing this with certain uh, startups and organizations like TrueVeta. They say, oh, well, how about this? We'll define some sort of subset of data, 50 variables. And oh, CIO, would you send 50 variables de-identified to a unified data model where then, say, analytics could be done on it? Oh, and there's some economic model that makes it work. Okay, that is a unified model. All the data is going into one place. And maybe you could do it for 50 variables, but you probably can't do it for the entire corpus of data that exists in an electronic health record birth to death. It's just to be hard to put everything in some sort of central unified data model. And there's technology issues, but there are also questions of patient privacy and de-identification and risk and that kind of thing. 
and maybe even questions of consent if you're trying to unify genomic data, behavioral health data, or substance abuse data. So anyway, it, it potentially okay for a subset, may not be generalizable. Well, then maybe there's another way you could do it. Oh, we'll create a secure container for the New Jersey hospital. It puts its data there. Mayo doesn't commingle it, doesn't put it into a single data model. Mayo may, might manage that container, but your data is actually kept separate and it's used as part of a collection of data modules to train AI. Okay, you know, maybe that could work. Still some interesting legal issues on data use, privacy, and consent. Well, then how about this? A distributed data model. What does that mean? So the data stays at the institution that generated it, behind its firewall. And we would send the AI tooling to that CIO and that CIO would run it inside their environment and get a result and simply report the result. So Anthony, again, you may be old enough to have read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, okay, so imagine this, we have a multi-million record data set in New Jersey. We send a Mayo algorithm to the CIO. The CIO runs it and says, the answer is 42. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is of course referring to Douglas Adams book where 42 is the answer to life, the universe and everything. And then simply tells Mayo Clinic, 42. Oh, well, there's no issue of consent, privacy protection and risk. We're just getting the answer from each of the participating organizations and aggregating the answers. Well, final approach might be something a bit more federated and Mayo is approaching this problem, kind of an interesting way to do it. The data does sit in the firewall of each inst participating institution, but we use a zero trust cryptographic approach so that Mayo has an algorithm and Mayo operates a distributed data network, but the data and the algorithm actually never leave the firewalls of the participating institutions. This cryptographic approach allows the data and the AI to interact and everybody feels pretty good. You know, I'm not risking patient privacy. I'm not risking the intellectual property of the algorithm, but we can still in a federated way interact. Anyway, I tell you all that because you're going to see over these next couple of quarters, a whole lot more AI. A lot of it's going to be bad AI. <laughs> and there's going to be a lot of pressure to open up data sets that are more heterogeneous and representative of a local population and provide some continuous monitoring if there are shifts in data that make the algorithm less useful. So next slide. So, but here's the interesting challenge. So imagine, and I've, I always pick on Anthony because it's he's more fun <laughs> than picking on Kate. Um, there is a can of soup in front of you, Anthony. It has <laughs> 2000 calories a serving. <laughs> Um, oh, I don't know, 60 grams of saturated fat and 2,000 milligrams of sodium. Yes, sir. You look at that can of soup and you say, mm, it's probably not the soup for me, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the problem. You go out to your EHR vendor or you go out to a startup and say, oh, I see you've got a great algorithm in pathology, radiology, neurology. 
and you say, I want to buy that. Well, do you have any clue what its performance characteristics are? Whether in fact it will work on a New Jersey population? Um, how many patients were used to train the model? Oh, a hundred? That doesn't sound very good. So what we've done over the last quarter is put together a coalition for healthcare AI. You'll see the announcement uh, in an editorial that appeared in STAT last week. The initial steering committee is Mayo, Stanford, Hopkins, Duke, University of California, Berkeley, Google, Microsoft, Bakul Patel from the FDA, who oversees all software medical as medical device regulations, is an observer, and Mickey Tripathi, who leads the Office of the National Coordinator, is an observer. And the intent of this group is over the next three quarters is to produce a national standard for the evaluation and labeling of algorithms. So that in fact, when you go to a algorithm marketplace, you'd be able to say, oh, I see, this one does work on people from New Jersey. And this has a sensitivity and specificity, a positive predictive value that I think gives it utility. And you can imagine that these standards, if promulgated correctly through the industry, let's imagine, Jay, LexisNexis had a library of these things, that you could imagine that EHRs or other kinds of applications could, based on having that metadata about algorithms exposed, download just in time the right decision support that you need for that patient in front of you. So all this is being done for free, in the public, open source. <laughs> there will be work groups established in the next month or so. And so, Anthony, you know, uh, we'll see, you'll, there'll be a call for membership in those work groups. So, you know, if there are elements of this that you'll want to work on, this label, we call it a nutrition label, or the monitoring and ongoing tuning and improvement of AI algorithms, we welcome your participation. Uh, we even think that FDA, I mean, I can't speak for the FDA, of course, but the FDA might take the guidance that comes out of this and then suggest that maybe as 510K or pre-cert is done in the future, that this kind of public disclosure of the algorithm's utility and performance would be a good part of a submission. And maybe even the academic literature would say, oh, we'll publish the article about your algorithm, but we need this disclosure about its performance characteristics. So pretty exciting stuff going on with this coalition. Next slide. So here's an interesting issue with AI validation. So here's a, a question. Can you, Anthony, because you know a lot about AI, can you explain how an AI algorithm actually works? Not today. Yeah. So <laughs> how about this? Even if we publish the nutrition label and you are able to monitor and test, we may not actually be able to explain how it works. And, and let me give you a ridiculous example. When I was a resident in emergency medicine in the county hospitals of Los Angeles in the early 90s, the residents had an algorithm if you came in after a gunshot wound and your legs were crossed, you would live. Now, I think you just would say, that's bizarre. That doesn't make any sense. Legs crossing. 
Well, actually, it may be an example of correlation, not causality, because if you can cross your legs, it probably means your brain's intact, you can feel things, and you can move things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so one of our challenges with explainability is you, your input variable could be leg crossing, but it actually could be a measure of something entirely different, <laughs> sensory and motor and cognitive function. Right. So I think what you're going to see as we work on AI together, we're going to do some great things with creating AI factories, democratizing access to AI, having software as a medical device oversight of some of this AI. But we're also going to have to really train people as to when they should believe the AI and how they should use it appropriately in their practice. Just because an algorithm has a sensitivity and specificity in the high 90s and was authored by Mayo Clinic doesn't necessarily mean that you should use it as your only data point when you're caring for a patient. You need to take into account care preferences, comorbidities, other aspects of the patient care. So it's this whole notion of training people and establishing sort of a general standard of practice for the use of AI, absolutely something we're going to have to work on. And as I was getting at, you're going to see more and more policy uh, around how these algorithms are deployed. Um, I will just tell you, Anthony, that when I chat with a hospital CEO, they rarely say to me, you know what I need? I need to go buy an algorithm. <laughs> What they want is a service. They want a, a result. And let's just, again, I'll give you a, an example. We, over the last five years in this country, have had an opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. So here's a question. If I write for a bunch of opioids, is that okay or not? Well, here's the issue. I'm an emergency physician, traumatologist, seeing people that are hit by cars uh, maybe for me in my practice with my patients in my location, it's actually okay. Mm -hmm. Whereas maybe if you are, let's pick another specialty that, you know, you're a kidney doctor <laughs> and, you know, maybe for those patients in your specialty, there's a Gaussian distribution that suggests you're writing a few too many opioid prescriptions, try something else. So, so anyway, I tell you that because we're gonna see a marketplace evolve, a kind of iTunes, if you will, for AI, where the provider organizations are going to want to purchase solutions to clinical problems, right, right. workflow challenges, quality issues, ongoing monitor and oversight, and not just go buy an algorithm that has a particular characteristic. So uh, this is what I imagine, again, looking at the next couple of quarters, we'll see more and more organizations, startups and academia producing these things, standards for evaluating them, secure mechanisms of bringing data and algorithms together in an IP and data preserving fashion, and mechanisms to bring into the workflow the decision support that you need that solves a clinical staffing or other workflow problem. So uh, I'm seeing the beginnings of it. And this is just uh, hopefully giving your audience a sense of what to expect between this hymns and next.
So that's the world as I see it from the uh, both uh, technology and policy side and look forward to Jay's remarks and then the question and answer. Very good. All right. I want to remind everyone attending that uh, now is a good time to send in your questions and I'll take a look at those and pose them to Dr. Holanka. So um, over to you, Jay. We're going to have a little chat. Um, and Jay Sultan is VP of Healthcare Strategy at LexisNexis Risk Solutions. So Jay, first, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, LexisNexis Risk Solutions and your role there? Sure. So LexisNexis Risk Solutions offers data, offers analytics and insights uh, that we sell to payers, to hospital systems, to uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers, to pharmacies. Uh, it helps them manage risk. It helps them get more information about the patients that they're treating or about the uh, helps with various operational and research kind of work that they're doing. Very good. My role uh, here is, I'm sorry, my role here is I, I lead the strategy uh, component for uh, how we take and apply our various assets and uh, carry them to the market. Very good. Dr. Halamka talked uh, quite a bit about creating algorithms and AI and ML, and I know that you provide data and leverage that data to create models, uh, which <laughs> maybe some could think of as uh, algorithm-like, um, but what have you learned about how to avoid sort of uh, health inequities, unintentional uh, biases being built into the models that, that you create? You know, one of the reasons why the things you heard Dr. Lamaka talk about is so important is because we have now a decent amount of objective evidence that some of these algorithmic uh, AI kind of tools um, do further uh, uh, perpetuate uh, uh, healthcare inequities, structural inequities in healthcare in the system. And it's not the, necessarily the fault of the models. It's not necessarily the fault of the researchers. I certainly don't think there's like ill intent. Uh, as we build models and as we deliver insights to our customers based on those models, we've learned some of the things that I think are, are really kind of uh, good behaviors and good practices for folks. Uh, one of them is it's important to make sure that the data set you're using, the, the training data set and the truth data sets, which are sometimes the same things and sometimes different, uh, you need to make sure you're looking for th that data to be as representative as possible. And that's really hard. Uh, Dr. Lamaka talked about the fact that if you build a model with Arizona data, it may not be all that useful in uh, New Jersey. It is absolutely the case, you know, the old saw, all healthcare is local. It's absolutely true. And it's also the case that in a lot of data sets and a lot of things that you wouldn't think are necessarily geographically uh, different, uh, there's all kinds of biases or, or lack of representativeness that comes from using data sets uh, and not understanding what, what the source of your data is, not understanding what bias might be in the data. Uh, so getting larger data sets, data sets, you know, a lot of the problems come from people who either use data sets that are too small, they have too few rows, or they're not broad enough. They don't have enough rows uh, from enough different parts of the country, enough different disease states, enough different hospital sizes, et cetera, et cetera. I also think that increasingly we're going to see, you know, as both as this administration continues to focus on opportunities of health equity, I think we're going to see more and more of a focus on using these models to better understand sensitive data. So when I say sensitive data, I mean race, I mean ethnicity, I mean LGBTQ status, 
And then I think there's others that are similar, uh, maybe even more operationally uh, interesting to a hospital, uh, maybe a little less sensitive, uh, languages spoken, you know, things like that. Uh, when you're working with that data, it's a very difficult and different kind of world. Uh, one is that in most of healthcare, I'm very suspicious of self-reported data. In my experience, self-reported data for a variety of reasons tends to be fairly inaccurate. But in the case of something like race, ethnicity or LGBTQ status, self-reported data is the gold standard. It's what everybody should have. And the, the, the context of the self-reporting is really important. That'll be the last point I make in just a second. But it's really important when we're using this data we have to be super transparent with the information and aware of biases that can come from the ways that the how and the why the data was collected. For example, like most Americans, I'm multiracial. If I self-identify one way in the workplace, maybe Caucasian, and I self-identify another way when I vote and I'm getting, say, a voter registration card or when I'm answering a question at a hospital where I might identify myself as Mideastern, you know, those kind of different contexts of my identity uh, can really impact data collection and then mess up the models, mess up the ways that we're trying to use the models, et cetera. And, and this can apply to gender, this can apply to uh, religion, race, et cetera. And so the last point I'd make that I think is super important is organizations are looking to work with data. And I think this is part of that uh, um, nutrition that we just heard about is to really understand the provenance of the data that is used by the researchers to create the model. Provenance is so important. And when I say provenance, of course, what I mean is where did the data come from? How was it collected? Why was it collected? For example, a lot of people are interested in using observed data. Um, there's large data sets out there of uh, where law enforcement or, or, or uh, the prison system has collected observed data about race and ethnicity. It's a very, very difficult data set to work with. And you know, we've made an ethical decision on our end. We're just not going to use that data, even though we have it. Uh, and the reason is because when we look at the providence and the context within which that data is collected, it introduces all kinds of both of problems from both the data science perspective, but also from, a, from an ethical perspective. So you have to have really, really good testing of data models with a view towards the factors that cause bias. You just have to be deliberate about when and how you're using the data. So I know I've, I've went on a lot, but it's a, you know, I, I spend a lot of time these days talking with organizations who want to buy this kind of data from us, who want to build models, who are hoping that we, are asking us to build models that can impute a person's race or ethnicity from various things. And, and as we work on, you know, figuring out which of that are we going to do and what can we do legally, what can we do ethically, these are the things that we struggle with as we work on these models. All right. Very good, Jay. Uh, excellent. Um, I want to do a little feature that I do in most of our other webinars, which is give you to the opportunity to ask each other a question. Um, so, Jay, I'm going to let you go first, kind of put you on the spot. Do you have a question sure. for Dr. Halamka? I think I'd ask uh, a question about the, uh, the, the new um, AI consortium you're talking about. Of course, there's a lot of people trying to come together and organize. There was a uh, an effort a few months ago by an organization called EHI to create a uh, uh, um, 
a, a, a um, voluntary code of conduct for health IT companies when building models like this and such. Um, I guess the question I'd ask you, sir, is how do you see all these different org um, uh, efforts to create professional responsibility and uh, uh, to coordinate you know, so much of what's otherwise siloed effort coming together? In other words, are we just going to live in a world where there's a bunch of organizations all trying to solve similar problems in different ways? Or, you know, do you think ONC or somebody is going to try to bring a little bit of structure to the various uh, efforts to accomplish what you described? So a prediction for you. Uh, what we saw during COVID was huge numbers of coalitions coming together. But then what we ended up with was coalitions of coalitions that actually we all recognized we were working on the same stuff and we all started to come together and have joint calls and move together jointly. I suspect the same thing is going to happen here because as you can guess, I mean, I think what EHI is doing and there are some industry sponsored activities, they're all really good things. And as all of us are trying to solve this problem together, we'll come together. But I suspect as well, this is just a prediction, not any knowledge I have specifically of anyone in federal government, that ONC will be the ultimate convener once the industry has come up with a few artifacts and guidelines, Ooh. ONC will ensure they are harmonized and promulgated. And no, since Mickey is an observer <laughs> on this coalition, I have a feeling he'll have a sort of ringside seat to see the, I, I hate to use Anthony, the term sausage being made. Could mm. I say the tofu being made? You know, I am a <laughs> vegan. <laughs> Which will then give him a sense of where is there agreement and disagreement across these various coalitions. And then he will convene us all. That That's a guess. Before, before you take your turn, can I ask you a unrelated follow-up question I thought might be of interest to your audience. I know when we think about these type of AI models, we're thinking about, you know, uh, I don't know, disease prediction or uh, uh, measuring care efficacy and stuff like that. But I think there's also a lot of opportunity for just much more kind of operational within the hospital, right? Uh, models helping you predict how many swing nurses you're going to need, models helping you uh, predict what your uh, changes in your length of stay or your variance days might be. Do you see uh, uh, hospital CIOs being more focused on the more clinically oriented models or the more operationally oriented models in the next few years? So you ask an even harder question, which is what do I think is the role of the CIO over the next decade? That's right? true. So, that is what right? I'm asking. Which is, yeah, because the role of the CIO when I was a CIO for 25 years was often provisioning you know, hardware, you'd, you'd have storage, compute, security, applications, and that kind of thing. I could argue the role of the CIO going forward is less provisioning and more procuring. And that is there's cloud hosted services. You can imagine, especially as we see the migration of hospital-based data centers to the cloud, there'll be many more layers of potential operational and clinical decision support tools that lay, that come into that cloud environment. I, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, I mean, I, though I focused on clinical IT and clinical AI today, I'm seeing a huge amount of operational questions like, 
how do we need staff? How many beds, how many IV pumps or ventilators will be needed next week? <laughs> or even simple things is, if in a value-based purchasing environment, is this patient likely to be readmitted? And you know, the algorithm runs not when they're discharged, but actually when they're admitted, you can forecast if they're gonna to need to be readmitted. <laughs> or prehab, if you're doing prehab even before the admission, absolutely. So totally agree that those are the kinds of things we'll all need if we're gonna to migrate to risk-based models and be successful. Dr. Halanka, you have a question for Jay. So this is related to his comments and it's purely, uh, I'll tell you an anecdote and I look for your response. Um, I have done a number of collaborative efforts with Change Healthcare and Change Healthcare made available 31 billion commercial claims de-identified in an aggregated cloud hosted data set. And Mayo said, well, we would like to look at social determinants of health the way you describe self-reported, race, ethnicity, gender identity, you know, that sort of thing. What we found is 16 billion of those encounters had self-reported social determinants of health. And my statisticians said, we better not use that data set. I said, but it's 16 billion. And they said, but here's the problem. Maybe it's those who have lower incomes are rurally located that are more reluctant to self-report on some of these variables. So in fact, using a data set that's sparsely populated, to your point, promulgates disparities mm -hmm. and therefore you might think of alternatives. So here's what we did. And just again, this is an interesting question for you and commentary. We invented something called the houses index. And here's how it works says, well, we actually know where you live. Now, it's a family. We can't really get down to the individual, but let's just say we know your geolocation. Is there a super fun site next door? Oh, is there a grocery store within walking distance? Do you have public transportation? How many doctors doing colonoscopies are within five miles of you, right? I mean, questions like that. So the way we de dealt with sparsely self-reported data, was by creating proxies that were based on geolocation to help us at least understand risk. Just curious what you think of that. So, um, you know, this is not a, a commercial opportunity for us. We do in fact create exactly the kind of SDOH data set for sale and sell them to providers that do just what you described that you created yourself. But so, so obviously the method of taking what I'll call reference data, uh, for example, in our data set, I can tell whether you own a car. I can tell whether you have a driver's license. I can tell if any of your anybody in your household has a car or has a driver's license. Uh, I can tell if you have a family member within five miles of you that has a car or a driver's license. We're able to take data like that and use it to create the kind of inferences you describe. The, the challenge is, again, even in that, is that you have to keep testing it for where there's unintentional bias involved. Uh, for example, a lot of folks do like to use census block as a means of understanding and identifying certain social determinants. And in some census blocks, they're very homogenous, but many of them are not in certain areas, you know, such as California. You can, I can tell you what census block a person lives in and you've learned almost nothing about them if they live in, in, in most parts of California, uh, you know, as opposed to say, 
you know, uh, in, in where, you, where uh, Mayo's located, there's a decent amount of uh, homogeneity uh, within the population that's very different in a place like California. Uh, and so you still, it's still really important to look for and test for the ways that bias is being introduced, right? So going back to your example, uh, uh, you know, maybe are you within walking distance of a grocery store? Well, maybe, or maybe you're within walking distance of a bodega that does have fresh fruit or that doesn't have fresh fruit. Uh, you know, if you, you don't have a car, but you live in Manhattan and you've got great access to the subway system, there's, you have to go down, you have to kind of keep clicking down and making sure that as you're trying to measure the kind of uh, factors you're talking about, you're recognizing that even in the use of the proxy data, you have to understand what bias there may be in the proxy data. Very well said. And I think just one follow-up. Here is my ideal vision for policymaking going forward. Imagine as a country, we say colon cancer is a huge issue. And using methods such as Jay has described, we can identify colonoscopy deserts. You just can't get access to the test. Or maybe there are socioeconomic factors. You can't take light work time off to get the test, you know, that kind of thing. And we start shipping Cologuard tests to those households where colonoscopy is just not likely to happen. Mm -hmm. And I mention this because, you know, Mayo invented the Cologuard test and it's a proxy uh, for a, it's, you know, pretty good actually. So yeah, I'm trying to look at your age, Jay. So remember you get that first I've used colonoscopy. It. I'm a customer. <laughs> you get the first colonoscopy at 50. The, the procedure is not so bad. The prep is the thing that's really awful. So mm -hmm. when you're 55 and they say, oh, you have a choice, a repeat or Cologuard, you say, I'll go with the Cologuard. Yeah. And it's literally a box that shows up on your doorstep. You take a stool sample and you ship it back to a lab and they do a DNA test for uh, uh, polyps that may be cancerous. And oh, what if we dealt with disparities and equity through additional home testing with approaches like that? Well, I think that's right. Reaching deserts, reaching unreached people. You know, one of the challenges, you know, you mentioned, you know, we work with a data set of over 11 billion de-identified medical claims. And when we play with that data set, one of the things we're immediately recognizing is that the vast majority of them are have insurance. They're either Medicare, by definition, they're either commercial insurance or they're Medicare patients. There's a large number of patients and patient care out there that you just never see in a data set like that. So to your point, maybe it's colonoscopy deserts, maybe it's homeless people, maybe it's people who are undocumented and are afraid to come to you know, get healthcare, but uh, until it gets really serious that you could use these targeting methodologies to help try to reach the unreached people. All right, <clears throat> very good. So we're almost out of time. I wanna get a final comment, but here's how I wanna position it. I wanna get focused back on the CIOs. Uh, which are and, and CISOs and CMOs, the C-suite IT executives. Um, but let's focus on the CIOs for this question. We, we talk a lot about uh, AI, ML, algorithms, things like that, and the different ways that they might evolve. Uh, Dr. Holomka talking about sort of a marketplace uh, where you can go in and, and try and find what you're looking for and perhaps uh, see some maybe even reviews. Uh, certainly understand the underlying methodology. And Jay talked about 
uh, uh, some important factors that would go into having comfort with a particular algorithm provenance and, and where the data has come from. You might be able to review it. You might be able to see how many stars it has if we get into that kind of situation. With, with the CIOs, um, a lot of times I picture this coming to them from operational leaders uh, hey, you know, like they, like they asked for software today or applications. Hey, uh, we want this over in this department. This is what we want. So the CIO checks and says, oh, well, we have something similar already. You know, look at this. Or, all right, uh, you know, let's run this through our governance process and see if it bubbles up. And, and you know, they check it and make sure it's qualified from security point of view and all these things. Do you see it evolving the same way in terms of the ask coming from operational leaders in the health system, bubbling up to the CEO and saying, hey, we want this algorithm. We think it's really going to help with patients or if it's operational, we think it's going to help turn beds or things like that. Um, do you see it evolving that way? And what can CIOs do to prepare for those conversations? How do they stay up on this? So when that ask does come, they're in a position to be able to provide uh, you know, valuable feedback on that request. So let me start with you, Dr. Holomka. So having done this for 25 years, I'd tell CIOs the most important thing is governance. Yeah. The problem with academic medical centers, and I don't mean this in any kind of criticism or negative way, is they can be 1,000 points of veto. <laughs> 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 right? Oh, I want it blue. I want it green. I need it red. Right? And so what you're going to need is a governance group that is going to deal with all the noise and say, actually, of the 300 requests we got today, here are, you know, the, the top five to pursue. But what will happen, and this is where I think CIOs over the next decade will be empowered. Instead of saying, oh, well, that'll be an 18-month project, and we've got to gin up a project management team and then go through a standard agile methodology or lean thinking or whatever, there'll be increasingly a capacity to, as we saw with uh, Jonathan Bush created early, 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 a marketplace called More Disruption Please, where what you could say is here's a qualified function that with one click, you can make part of your workflow. So once governance says do something, the time to getting it live in a cloud-hosted service-oriented environment will be less costly and less delayed. That would be my guess. And we also have that low code, uh, you know, that sort of trend, which is, again, more self-service, more here tools, and do-it-yourself um, can sort of foster innovation uh, and the ground level, people that are actually dealing with the problem. Uh, Jay, uh, I'm going to get your thoughts, and then we're going to call it call it a webinar. Now, I, I actually do see a lot of organizations, when it gets to that CIO level, the response to the CIO is, oh, why don't you just let us build it? I'll go get a data. I've got data scientists. Let me do everything. I, I think there's a place for that. And I think, again, part of what the governance needs to indicate is what are the things that really need to be secret sauce, that need to be core competencies, where you want to have your own competitive differentiation? And what should you not waste your time on? But what I would warn CIOs about is to understand that the vast majority of software, of services, of things that you're being asked to consume have these and will have these AI models baked into them. 
in ways that'll sometimes be a little hidden to you, right? So somebody comes to you and says, look, I wanna bring an RPO. You know, I've, I've got a widget that can uh, help you with uh, your revenue cycle management by anticipating uh, what claims will get denied. And, you know, if we add this, we're gonna, you know, help our RCM in the following ways. There's almost certainly the kind of MLAI models in it that we're talking about here. Uh, same thing for, things that help you predict contention in your post uh, OR or uh, you know, the various other kind of uh, both de decision support, but also kind of operational efficiency, operational management. And again, you don't wanna be the one where you went out and you bought a great software solution from such and such a company and then you end up on the front page of the local paper because it involved an algorithm that had only been trained on 25 people who are all you know, genetically related to each other or something. So, so you wanna be a smart shopper to recognize that if you don't think you're buying these models today, you are. You're just buying them as part of a package service and part of your diligence on the other things you're already doing governance and diligence on needs to be to investigate the MLAI inside of it and ask the question, how confident am I that they did a proper job of training this, of testing it, and that I'm not, uh, again, intro unintentionally introducing uh, a bias or, or health inequity into my processes? Yeah, it's a great point. And uh, I know we do that now for security. So right now, as part of the review process of anything coming in, it'll go over to the CISO, to security, to be vetted in that respect. And, it, and we don't have time to get into it, but it makes me wonder who's going to do it on the MLAI side. How many health systems have the internal competence to review an algorithm or AI and ML? They've built out the security apparatus, but I, I don't know if, if any except the largest would really have that in-house competence. So something to think about. Excellent webinar today. Regarding continuing education, you can use the final slide in this deck uh, for a certificate. You'll receive an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want a sponsored event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team. You can go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank our tremendous speakers today, Dr. John Halamka and Jay Sultan. And I want to thank LexisNexis Risk Solutions for sponsoring, making this possible, and you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much.